Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 8. We're moving into a new section. We're, we're out of the Sermon on the Mount that we began in January. And I just, just as we're moving into chapter 8, want to just give you the flow of what Matthew's been doing so far for us. The first four chapters... He outlined, Matthew outlined for us Jesus' credentials, that he is the son of David, that Jesus is the rightful heir to that throne, that he has the right by birth to sit upon the throne of David. And also that Jesus is more than just the son of David, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us. He's the son of God. He's not just son of David. He's son of God. And we see Matthew tell, show us the story of how kings came and bowed down to this child. The king above all kings, even at his birth, he's recognized as kings come and pay homage to him and, and worship at his cradle. And we even see that, that his kingdom uh, represents a threat to every other claim to authority and power, and even King Herod tries to eliminate this threat as Jesus is a baby, and he tries to kill Jesus even as a baby. So, so Matthew, the first four chapters, really gives us his credentials, his resume, if you will, for the Messiah. Then as we've been in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, we get Jesus' teaching. So this is how you live in his kingdom. This is Jesus giving us the law of the kingdom of God. And so now we here move into chapter 8. And, and chapter 8 and 9, specifically, he outlines for us Jesus' power. Jesus' power. Not only does Jesus have the right credentials, not only does he have the right teaching and the right law for his kingdom, but he also has the power to act, the power to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. And so that's the next section. That's chapters 8 and 9. And Matthew's broken this uh, section into an interesting format where he gives us three miracles and then a teaching of Jesus. Again, three miracles, another teaching of Jesus, and then three more miracles and another teaching of Jesus. So this, this uh, two chapters is broken into uh, three sets of three miracles and a teaching. I don't know why he broke them into that way, but it's very clear that that is the way that he organized uh, this, showcasing the power of Christ. And so today we're going to look at the first set of these three miracles looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. And it says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof 
to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant. Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would make it profitable to us. Lord, as we look at these three stories, these three miracles, and even the the crowds, Lord, that you healed at the end, Lord, that you would uh, build our faith, that you would strengthen our faith in your power. Lord, that you would show us and that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, we here as your people gathered here to worship you, to receive your word, I pray that you would press it deep within our hearts by your spirit. And Lord, that as we leave this place, that we will not be fools who go out only having heard your word, but not doing it. Lord, that you would make us doers of your word as we go out from this place today, shining as lights in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What's interesting about these three that Jesus uh, uh, heals, that Jesus touches here, And the way that Matthew has organized them is that these are all outsiders. These are outsiders. You have a leper, you have a Gentile, and you have a woman. Within the larger culture of that day, these were all considered to be outsiders. These were all considered to be less than. The Pharisees, who were the dominant Jewish culture in Jesus' day, They used to pray a prayer every morning that went like this. I give thanks that I am a man and not a woman, a Jew and not a Gentile, a free man and not a slave. In the dominant culture of Jesus' day, led by the Pharisees, all three of these are outsiders. The Pharisees would have paid little attention to any of these people. But Jesus is not like the Pharisees. Jesus cares for the outsider. 
Jesus cares for the outcasts. Let's look at first this leper. The first, the healing is, the first healing is done to this person who has this disease called leprosy. Leprosy in Jesus' day was an incurable disease. It was a death sentence. There was no cure for this. And it was a disease, it was used sort of as a, a blanket term, a bucket term for a disease that would grow and would manifest somehow in your skin, somehow in, in lesions and, and boils. And you think of some sort of probably even cancerous that, that began to grow malignant upon the skin. They would be labeled as lepers. They would be put out from the community as highly contagious as unclean. And in fact, they, they bore this burden upon them that if anyone would approach them before they even got close to them, they had to identify themselves as unclean. They, they verbally had to, to make it known, unclean, I'm unclean. Keeping everybody away at an arm's distance. Keep, keeping everybody away from from the disease that they had somehow contact, contacted in their body and that was considered to be highly contagious. They couldn't be touched. They couldn't be interacted with. They would be quarantined off into their own leper colony, away from their family, away from their friends, away from those that they loved most dear. Of course, we know that they didn't live in our modern times like we live where we can just pick up our phones and, and connect with people on video and, and text and, and stay connected. No, this was a death sentence and this was an isolation sentence. It's hard for us to imagine what that would be like to, to contact some sort of, contract some sort of disease and that you can never see your loved ones again. Think about that. When, when we're sick, don't we want to, to, to be cared for? Don't we want to be, have our needs looked after? Have, have somebody loving us and, and nursing us back to health? This was an isolation sentence. This was a death sentence. And Jesus here, he comes off the mountain, it says. Great crowds surrounding him, great crowds following him as he's finished this teaching and the, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching that had authority. And though Jesus is surrounded by the multitudes, surrounded by the crowds, when this leper approaches him, Jesus turns his gaze to this one solitary leper. Jesus is not so enamored with the multitudes, enamored with the crowds, that he says, I don't have time for you. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going to deal with you. No, when, when, when this leper approaches Jesus, Jesus looks at him. Jesus sees him. Jesus notices him. And I think a lot of times in life we can feel isolated. We can feel like we're disconnected. We can feel like... Nobody knows and nobody sees the challenges and the hurts and the pains that we go through in this life. But let me tell you something. Jesus sees. 
Jesus is, is near, the Bible says, to the brokenhearted. Jesus is, is near to those who are sick. Jesus is near to those who are hurting and who are in pain. Jesus is, is not so busy that he can't see you and can't touch you. Even right where you're at today. This man, he comes to Jesus and, and notice the faith that this leper has. His statement, he says, Lord, first he identifies Jesus. He calls him Lord. If you will, you can make me clean. What a statement of faith. What a statement of faith in the power that Jesus has. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds by saying, I will be clean. But Jesus, in, in doing that, it's not what he says that is so astonishing, it's what he does. Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus does the unimaginable as Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper. He, he touches the one who was untouchable. He reaches out his hand. And, and this is a little bit difficult for us to understand because we don't live in this kind of day and age. We, we don't live under this fear of, of contracting leprosy and being issued this death sentence. But, but hear me in this. This is truly shocking. Anyone else who would have done this would have been defiled would have been polluted by touching a leper, but not Jesus. Jesus stretches forth his hand to touch the untouchable. Jesus stretches forth his hand to cure the incurable. Jesus shows that he is willing to heal, and he heals this leper. His leprosy, it says, immediately was cleansed. Can you imagine seeing that? Whatever disease was all over this person, it had to be obvious for it to be leprosy. If it was just some sort of internal disease, they, it wouldn't have been so obvious in that way as to call it leprosy. The sores, the, the, the lesions, the, the, the boils, whatever it was, immediately at the touch of Christ are healed. Jesus tells the man, go and, and, and don't say anything to anyone, but show yourself to the priest and, and go through the, the, the ritual process of being legally declared cleansed so that you can rejoin now the community. He would be able to go back to his family. Can you imagine that day? As, as the kids and the wife see their dad coming home, no longer wrapped in the bandages of leprosy, no no longer having to, to make the declaration unclean, unclean. He walks home and the kids run out and he says, I'm healed, Jesus healed me. Jesus touched me and made me clean. He tells him, don't go and tell anybody. We know from the other gospels that when Jesus would heal people, he would tell them, don't tell anybody about this. Jesus had a, had a timetable. He was accomplishing the Father's will, heading to the cross. And, and 
for word to spread too rapidly. He, he didn't want that to be compromised. And so he always said, don't go tell anybody, don't go tell anybody. But we do know that when Jesus would heal people, would they listen to him? No, they would go and tell everybody. They would go tell everybody. Shout it from the mountaintops. Jesus touched me. Jesus healed me. Warren Wearsby, a, a very noted commentator, he says about that. He says this. He says, Jesus told the leper, go and tell no one. And he goes and tells everyone. Jesus instructs us to go tell everyone. And we tell no one. I'll just leave that there for you, just to chew on that. Let's move on to the centurion. The centurion, this second miracle here in this set. A centurion was a Roman soldier. He was a commander of a hundred soldiers. So he, he was someone who had rank. Someone who had proven himself in battle. Someone who had proven himself a, a worthy commander. Someone who uh, was looked up to. Someone who had some means about him. He had a servant. And, and he could command these people to go and they go and to do this and they do it. But he was a Roman soldier. We know that at this time in uh, the, the area of Israel that the uh, people were occupied by Roman guard as part of the Roman Empire, that they had been uh, brought into the Roman uh, Empire as the Roman go uh, government and empire had gone out and expanded. And so the Jewish people are living under Roman occupation and they hate it. There's been so many rebellions over the years that they, they tried to overthrow uh, the occupation and they were met with violent force that, uh, and, and in fact, just, just an incredible amount of bloodshed uh, as these rebellions had been squashed by Rome. And so they are under the Roman rule. And so this Roman who's there in Israel, he, he's there as an occupier. He, he's not part of the community. He's not viewed as uh, someone that people enjoy his presence. He represents in their day an oppressor. And so he is hated. The Romans are absolutely hated by the Jews. They despise them. Not only was he a Roman, he was also a Gentile. And the Pharisees especially had uh, a hatred for Gentiles, regarding them as dogs. But here comes this Roman centurion, and he comes to the Lord in humility and in faith. Look at what he, he says to, to Jesus in verse 6. He says, Lord, what a statement. Can we just recognize the, the power of a Roman centurion calling Jesus Lord? This is massive. The Roman centurion approaches Jesus and, and, and comes to him in humility, calling Jesus Lord. I mean, I mean, think about it. 
Who, who is at the, on the higher uh, place in the totem pole in that society and culture in that day? The Jewish peasant carpenter? Or the Roman centurion? It's the Roman centurion, far and away. Yet the Roman centurion comes to Jesus in humility, calling him Lord, and then saying, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. When he asked Jesus to come, Jesus says, I'll come and heal your servant. And he says, I'm not worthy for you to even step foot in my house. In my house. Think about the, the cultural dynamics of that day. Think about what's happening here as this Roman centurion is humbling himself, going to Jesus, recognizing something in him so that he can even call Jesus Lord. He recognizes something in Jesus that transcends the cultural dynamics, transcends the, 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 the totem pole and the, the society at large that's at play in that day. Maybe he had seen the way he had healed the leper. We, we know that the, the Roman guard, that they were around in that day, because wherever Jesus went, there were crowds, and, and the Romans were the ones who had to keep the peace to make sure that no rebellion was going to rise up. And so the Romans were in and around all of that. Maybe he saw the healings that were taking place. Maybe he heard the sermon that Jesus preached. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Maybe he had heard the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was there on the Mount and had heard it. And nevertheless, something had produced faith in his heart and, and he recognizes something in Jesus that causes him to go in humility and faith to Christ. And when Jesus says, I'm going to come, he says, no, don't come, but just send the word. Just say it and it will be done. So this, this man not only has, has humility, not only does he have faith, but he has great faith. He has great faith that, that Jesus, you don't even have to come, you don't even have to be there, you don't even have to touch him. If you only say the word, I know Jesus that you have the power. I know Jesus that you have the authority to heal my servant, even from right here where we speak. And this faith makes such an impression upon Jesus. It says that in verse 10 that Jesus, when he heard this, he marveled. He was astonished. And he said to those around him, he uses this as an object lesson. Look at this man's faith. And he says, I have not found such faith even in all of Israel. This man has more faith, he says to his disciples, than all of you. This Gentile, this Roman, this man who is despised, this man that you hate, he has more faith than you guys. How would you like to hear that? I can guarantee you they did not enjoy hearing that little illustration that Jesus put forward. But if that didn't get their blood boiling, let me tell you, verse 11 most definitely would have. Because he goes on to say, he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west. He's talking about the Gentiles now. 
He's talking about this dynamic of, of Jew versus Gentile. He says many are going to come and they're going to be sitting around at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is a shocking statement. This would be, I, I, I just think of the most inflammatory thing that anybody could say today. And this would be it in our culture. Jesus, what are you saying? These dogs, these Gentiles are going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at, at the, the, the place of honor in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven? What, what in the world are you talking about? He says many, that they're going to be flooding in. Gentiles are going to be flooding in to the kingdom of God. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 12, he says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses this faith of the centurion to teach an important principle that's about to come down. And that is that the kingdom of God is open to all people, all places, all nations. That it's not just for the natural descendants of Abraham. That it's for the whole earth. For all peoples are going to be brought in because they're going to have faith in the Christ. They're going to have faith in the Messiah. And those that don't have faith in the Messiah, though they be natural descendants of Abraham, will be cast out of the kingdom. Do you remember when Jesus said that narrow is the way? Narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it. Do you remember when he said that? Again, I, I submit to you that when he said that in the Sermon on the Mount, his primary audience was a Jewish audience. And he says, few will follow me. Few of the natural descendants of Abraham Though they descend uh, from him by blood, they are not his descendants by faith, and they will be thrown out of the kingdom. There is only one way to the Father, and it is Jesus Christ. There is not another way for Jew and for Gentile. We live in a day and age where there's so much confusion about this today. So much confusion. But hear me in this. Jesus is not confused. If you don't have faith in the Messiah, you are not part of the people of God. It is those who are of faith in Christ who are the people of God. It is those who are of faith in Christ who are God's chosen people. And we are chosen from the foundation, from before the foundation of the world. So we are not chosen because of blood or natural descent, but God has chosen us and he has grafted us in to the promise of Abraham by faith. By faith. God's chosen people are not marked by natural blood, but those who have been sprinkled in the blood of Christ and are now marked by faith in the Messiah. 
And if you are Jew or Gentile, you have equal standing in the kingdom of God, which fills the whole earth if you have faith in the Messiah. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, Paul says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, Romans 2.29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Galatians 3.7, Paul makes it even more clear. Galatians 3.7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This Roman centurion, the occupier, the hated, the despised, the outcast, is a son of Abraham because he has faith in the Messiah. And those natural descendants of Abraham who reject the Messiah are not sons of Abraham because they don't have the faith that Abraham had. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is the teaching of the New Testament. This is the teaching of the apostles. We are God's chosen people. Peter says, you are a chosen generation. To to everyday believer, he says, you are a royal priesthood. You don't need some sort of special, you know, uh, uh, family tree to, to be connected to God and have some place in his kingdom. No, it's for everybody. It's the priesthood of all believers. We, we offer to God sacrifices of praise. When we come to, to gather as God's people, we're doing ministry as unto the Lord. That's why this is called a service. Not because we serve you, but because together we serve God and offer him sacrifices of praise as a royal priesthood. So Gentiles from all over the place are going to be ushered into the kingdom while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness because they reject their Messiah. Now, in Romans 9 through 11, I don't have time to go there today, but Paul outlines what is happening in this age. And he explains that there is a a future revival that will come even to the sons of Abraham, even to the natural descendants of Abraham, where, where those who are descended from Abraham who have historically rejected their Messiah, that they will be brought back in as they look to their Messiah in faith. That there is going to be a massive revival in the end times, in the last days, of Jewish people who will come back to their Messiah. So we should pray for that. But hear me in this. There's not not a second way to be made right with the Father separated from the Messiah. That when the, when the Jews are, are grafted back in, they will come to Christ. The Bible says they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will weep and they will mourn when they recognize 
who their Messiah is. And so the, the, there is no hope apart from the redemption of Christ and the body of Christ, which is his church. And so we need to be praying for the salvation of the Jewish people and that they would turn to Christ in faith. And I would submit to you, I shouldn't say this, but I will, that's the most important thing. The souls of the Jewish people is more important than anything else. I'm just going to stop there and save myself a lot of emails. Than anything else. It's the souls. It's where they're going to spend eternity. And too, too often Christians are, are so much more occupied about natural things, which are important, but they neglect the spiritual. We want to see the Jews come to Christ. Come to Christ. Amen. Peter's mother-in-law, in closing... Again, women were not highly regarded by the Pharisees. Jesus enters the house. He sees her sick. He reaches out. He touches her hand. Her fever leaves her immediately. She gets up. She begins to, to serve them. Women were looked down upon in the first century. A woman's testimony was not admissible in court. The general attitudes about women in Rome, in Roman culture are honestly just too vulgar for me to even mention what they would say from the pulpit this morning. If you have pearls, you would be clutching them if I would start to say what they would say about them. But Jesus rejects all of those ungodly attitudes. He recognizes women as image bearers of God, equal in dignity and value and worth, not to be outsiders and to be outcasts. And so it's no coincidence that wherever the gospel goes, wherever the, uh, Christ goes, wherever the Great Commission goes and takes root in a people, takes root in a culture, that the status of women is always elevated. L look at every culture where the gospel has gone into and, and not just had a, a meager witness here and there, but I mean transform that culture you will find the role of women and the status of women within that culture elevated always. Because sinful men use their strength, and I know it's crazy to say this in 2023, that men in general are stronger than women. I know people don't believe that, but it's a biological fact of nature that in general, men are stronger than women, and so they can throw their weight around, and so sinful men left unchecked, will oppress women. That's just the way it goes by, by sheer nature of their strength. And so when the gospel goes in, it radically upends this way of thinking and the status quo so that the role of women is, is elevated and that women and children are now protected. So this doesn't, the gospel where it goes, it doesn't obliterate the distinctions between men and women as our culture is trying to do with disastrous effects. I saw this this week where a, a, you know, a biological male is competing against a team of women. He's so dominating them, he ends up elbowing one of the ladies and knocking her teeth out. It's just shameful. It's absolutely shameful. The disastrous effects of, of obliterating the distinctions, the gospel doesn't obliterate the distinctions 
But it calls us, both men and women, to serve Christ in our unique way and in our unique stations. And so Christ calls upon men to use their strength and their leadership to protect and to care for women instead of dominating them and oppressing them. And so 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says this. He gives this direction to husbands. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So husbands, if you are not trying to understand your wife, you are, you are being sinful in your marriage. You say, well, I can't understand her. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's no excuse. According to the word of God, you have to live with your wives in an understanding way, which means you must seek to understand that woman that God put in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to seek to understand all women everywhere, because that would be impossible. But God, God gave you one woman. He gave you one woman. And it is your job to spend the rest of your life learning who she is, learning what makes her tick, serving her, loving her, sacrificing her, pouring your life into her. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, I know, again, in our day and age, to say that women are weaker than men is a shocking statement. Nevertheless, it is a biological reality that even the Bible acknowledges. But it says that we are to do this in a way that shows honor. In a way that shows honor. And I would submit to you that the difference between men and women and as it regards strength, I would say is like this. It's the difference between, and I know this is a bad analogy, and if it offends you, I'm sorry. I'm trying to make it actually non-offensive. But it's the difference between an oil pan and fine china. One is more delicate. One is much more utilitarian. One is way more special and precious. And so he says, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, I would say the more delicate vessel, like fine china, special and glorious. And that you, you treat it in a way that shows that kind of honor. You're not just bumping it all around like it's replaceable, but, but you, 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 it's, it's for special occasions, it's something honorable, it's something glorious. So husbands, we ought to interact with our wives in that way, showing honor to the woman as the glorious vessel that she is. And he says, the reason you should do this is because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're co-heirs. Women are co-heirs in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen? And so this, this message elevates the role of women. Wherever it goes within culture. And he goes on to say, men, you need to do this so that your prayers may not be hindered. That the treating your, mistreating your wife hinders God answering your prayers. Just think about that for a minute. So if a culture does not honor women and recognize the unique God-given contributions that they make to the world, it is sinful. 
So Jesus, he comes in. He's not burdened by all this cultural baggage. He doesn't care about any of that. The cultural baggage in his day that is sinful. He sees this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. He's moved by her condition. He reaches out. He touches her. And he heals her. And she, it says, is so completely healed in that moment. She instantly gets up and begins to serve them, begins to show hospitality. And the story concludes that that evening, her home that she has now turned into this this beautiful place by serving and and preparing meals and, and doing all of this stuff to serve Jesus and the disciples, her home becomes this base, this ministry base where that evening the community comes in and the sick come in and are healed and the oppressed come in and the demon-filled people come in and Jesus touches them and they are healed and they are set free. And so she begins to serve Jesus in this practical way, making her home a place where people can meet Jesus and find the touch that only he can bring. In a way, we are all like each one of these. In a way, we're like the leper, we're like the centurion, we're like Peter's mother-in-law. We're like the leper in this, that we have come to Christ with an incurable disease. We are all defiled and broken by sin, and we are hopeless and we are helpless. Yet Christ has not left us in our hopeless state, but he has reached down his hand of grace and touched us, taking our disease of sin upon his own shoulders. He has directed his gaze our way. Though he is so high and exalted, he has made himself near to us, become acquainted with our sorrows and with our grief, And died for our sin. Taking our disease upon himself. So that we could receive the healing touch of salvation. That only is found in him. We are like the centurion. We are Gentiles. Separated outside of of the natural descendants of Abraham. I began this morning's service by reading from Ephesians 2. And it's appropriate here as well. That we Gentiles, we need to remember that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, that's Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, in Jesus' day, there was a, called the wall of the Gentiles. There was the court of the Gentiles at the temple. If you wanted to go worship God at the temple, if you were a Gentile, you could only go so far. You had to stay far away from the presence of God. But here he says that Christ has torn down that wall of hostility. He has opened up the covenant to all peoples, all places, all nations. 
And so we have been grafted into the promise that God made to Abraham. We are now God's chosen people. We are the people of God. And we, like this centurion, share in the faith of Abraham. Not unbelief, but we share in his faith. And we are like this woman, this mother-in-law of Peter. We are so sick and so burdened with our sin that left in that state, we are useful to no one. Our burden has made us a burden to everyone around us. But when Christ touched our lives, He took our disease of sin upon Himself, and we are no longer useless but we are now useful to the master. And so we arise from our bed of infirmities. We arise from our life of sin. We pass through the waters of baptism. We were crucified with Christ. And now we have a new life. And the life we now live, we live by the power of God to serve Christ, to wait at his feet. And we open our lives and our homes so that Christ may minister through us to touch the lives of others. It's remarkable to me who Jesus associates himself with. Not with the powerful, not with the well-connected, not with the ruling elites and the well-educated and, and the in crowd. But where do we find Christ? Wherever you find Christ, he is surrounded by the needy, by the poor, by the broken, by the sick, by the hopeless, by the desperate, by the outcast. And he receives them all. He receives them all. He turns no one away who comes to him with genuine faith. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. He reaches down from heaven to touch our poor and miserable lives and to take our sin upon himself. This man from Galilee is not just a Jewish carpenter. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And the same Jesus who healed this leper who touched the centurion's servant, who healed Peter's mother-in-law, is the same Jesus who heals today, is the same Jesus who saves today, is the same Jesus who delivers today. What boundless love the Father has lavished upon us in sending forth His Son to touch us that we would be whole. He came and walked among us, giving us His Word healing the sick and dying for our sins to give us his life and life eternal. Do you know this love? Have you felt this touch upon your soul? If you have felt this touch, I know again you say like me, Lord, touch me again. Touch me again that I would be cleansed, that I would be whole. What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. The question the leper asked Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, I will be made whole. Week in and week out, we go throughout the world. 
We touch the world and the world touches us. We live in this world of sin. Though we're called to be salt and light, often the defiling effects of the sin in the world touch us and get into our lives. And so we, like the leper, need to cry out again, Lord, touch me. Touch me again. We reach out to the Lord in faith, saying, Lord, if you are willing, I will be made whole. And the Lord looks down from heaven and he says, I am willing and be made whole. In the communion table, he, he, he gives us his body. He gives us his blood. He answers and says, take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you and my blood that is shed for you.